Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I recently had the great pleasure of talking with Eduardo Cohn about his recent book, How Forests Think, Toward an Anthropology Beyond the Human. This came out in 2013 with the University of California Press. This book is grounded in a very rich, uh, very deep, um, and a really wonderful ethnography of a particular village in Ecuador's upper Amazon. It uses that ethnography to, to both give a very detailed and a very pointed account of the context that Cohn is talking about, but also to open up much more broadly the way it's possible for us to think about and with non-human selves. Now, what that looks like will become clear um, in much more detail once you get to the course of the conversation, but it's really, I think, a tremendously important intervention in how we tend to think about and what we tend to assume about integrating non-human actors into our stories about science studies, our stories about the world. I love this book. It's been completely transformative for me. I've been teaching with it. I've been going back over and over the chapters since I first read it. Um, It's really completely changed how I think about and how I work with selves, non-human entities, and notions of space and of being and of life and of death and the kind of material that I work with. It's also beautifully written. It's very moving. And it will give you ways of thinking about and thinking with dreaming and dreams, not just of people, but also of dogs and of other entities. It's a wonderful accounting of animals, of forests, of water, of people, of language, And it's just a a beautiful and extraordinarily compelling, I think, and very challenging work. And so I hope you have a chance to read the book. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you also enjoy the conversation. And I can't emphasize enough how much that I've really enjoyed both. 
I'm here today to talk with Eduardo Cohn about his awesome new book, How Forests Think, Toward an Anthropology Beyond the Human. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Eduardo, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today about this book. I really loved it, and I'm really, really looking forward to it. So thank you. Thanks so much, Carla, and thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Of course. So let's talk a little bit about yourself and your background as it pertains to the book. Specifically, you talk early on at the very beginning of the book about having a a kind of a deep family connection to work and life in Amazonia, which is where the book is set. So what brought you, to start at the very beginning of um, which probably a long process, what brought you to the anthropology of Ecuador's upper Amazon? How did you come to this broad field that you're working in today? Well, I, my, my parents are, are children of European Jewish, Jewish refugees who escaped uh, the Holocaust and went to Ecuador. Uh, so many of my uh, relatives live in Ecuador, and I was extremely close to my grandmother, who was an amateur archaeologist, and my grandfather, who was a pharmaceutical chemist, who was going into the Amazon. So I would spend a lot of time with them when I was a kid. Um, and I think that's basically how I got started um, I actually met, as I mentioned in the book, I met my the person who was going to be my uh, my PhD advisor when I was twelve uh, in my grandmother's house. So I was there from very early on, and that's uh, I started traveling into the Amazon and kind of got hooked, uh, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what what's going on in this really complicated forest that uh, was just very interested. I found it very interesting. So why, um, given the, the fact that you had this kind of connection already early on with this area, how did you come to anthropology as a disciplinary home for exploring the kinds of issues you were interested in within that region? Well, it's, I mean, I guess I did get, uh, obviously, anthropology is about the study of people. Um, and I think what I've always drawn me about, so, you know, I could have done it many other ways, but, and in fact, there were... Uh, as I started getting more interested in, in tropical biology, there were a couple of biologists who were trying to recruit me to get me to do a PhD in, in tropical biology. And I, I, I realized that anthropology, as I knew it, uh, was, was basically the, the field that would allow me to do the most kinds of things. Because at a minimum, um, I could define um, my work based on any number of things that anyone was doing in the field. Um, I later expanded that even further to kind of in some ways go beyond the human and anthropology itself through anthropology. But um, I didn't, when I started doing research, I I actually didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really know about science studies or any other kind of framework that was, would allow this. So this was, seemed to me the best. uh, But of course, I also am very committed to. I've, I'm always. I've always been very committed to anthropology um, eth- uh, through the method of eth- ethnography and the sort of insistence of really, uh, you know, well, really going deep into, say, learning languages and things like that. So my work was done in, in the in the in the in the field language, and um, you know, I spent a lot of time doing sort of traditional ethnographic field work, which I'm still methodologically very committed to. 
So the book itself, very, very briefly put, and we're going to go into lots and lots more detail about what this means and what the consequences and implications are. The book itself proposes, as you um, just alluded to, an anthropology beyond the human. So we'll talk in more detail about what that means and how it unfolds in the course of the book. But before we do that, to get us started, can you talk a little bit about how you came to that particular focus? So we've moved from the general area to anthropology or ethnography as um, a kind of disciplinary or um, conceptual set of methodologies. So how and why the, uh, the non-human or the beyond the human? Well, I, I was always, as I, you know, as I just said, I was methodologically very drawn to ethnography. And of course, I have a deep commitment to, I've spent a lot of time with people in, in Ecuador and I just have a, so there's a kind of a draw to uh, anthropology for that reason, both methodologically and also in terms of the subject matter. But I was never, I, I always found it problematic that certain things, that, that things could only be talked about um, in terms of cultural construction or social construction or historical contingency. Um, and that was always something that, um, that, that, from the very beginning was it was an issue for me and and I had some sort of instinct even before I had sort of uh, formulated it that, that somehow uh, interacting doing ethnography with people who are doing something that doesn't only involve humans would be a way to get at this but I, it was very uh, even when I was doing my dissertation it wasn't I didn't really have a clear framework for how how this is actually going to work. I just knew that if I looked in this area and, and listened, um, something interesting was happening. So did the project or how you were thinking about it, narrating it, um, constructing it, envisioning it, change in any kind of significant way from the dissertation stage to the manuscript stage? Were there any major transformations in that process that reshaped how you approached or thought about what you were doing in the book? Yes, I mean the the dissertation, the, diff, the 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 project is the same. Most of the field work that I did for the for what is the book was done during the dissertation, uh, and um, but the dissertation and the book are completely different. I mean, I don't think there's more. There are probably more than a few paragraphs or sentences that are the, that are sustain, the same. Um, and it changed a lot, largely by um, basically following much more carefully what things that were insights or hunches about what was going on say in in the in the dissertation i I kind of focused on a few things uh for example you know this bizarre thing that comes up later on in chapter four about dog dreams and why dog dog dreams are different from human dreams or things like that and these things which i sort of was able to sort of identify as interesting problems and was able to sort of discuss the ethnography. I wasn't really able to fully get to the bottom of what was going on and what the implications were for what we were doing as anthropologists. So, so the book really allowed me to, to really kind of build over a very long period of time, a much more sustained reflection on what was going on. And it is a, a slow book. The book I was basically, um, it was I would, roughly about a decade in in writing it after the dissertation. So it was really, it's a very special moment in my life. Um, it was a kind of a funny parallel universe. One, well, one of course was the actual ethnographic work, which I spent four years in Ecuador doing. And the other was writing a book that, you know, if I were, 
which uh, junior scholars are usually, you know, they usually under tremendous pressure to write quickly. And a, and a first book is often something that's produced in a couple of years. In both cases, I've always sort of just, I've just sort of done my own thing with these things. And I'm, I have to say, I'm, I'm happy with the way that turned out. So am I. <laughs> it's an amazing book. I mean, I think it's, it's the kind of, it, it, the thinking and the conceptual confidence and elaboration here just show the kind of maturity that most of us just don't have, frankly, a couple of years, three, four years out of the PhD. And so well, well, well worth the wait. I think this is really a field changing book in a lot of ways, and not just for um, anthropology, but particularly for STS as well. And mm-hmm. um, I'm sure mm-hmm. we're going to get to that. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of the book, um, to get right into it, yeah. introduces a moment that's going to um, that we're going to see again and again unfolding over the course of the book. This is a moment where you um, explain a conversation where you were um, told when where jaguars are around, sleep face up. So mm-hmm. let's start here. Um, can you explain for listeners, especially listeners maybe who who aren't familiar um, with this idea, what is a, wa- a were jaguar? And in what way does this anecdote motivate right at the beginning the kind of work that you want to do um, mm-hmm. in, in this part of the book? Mm-hmm. Well, a were jaguar is sort of like a werewolf. It's a funny term. It's a shape-shifting jaguar, a jaguar that is also a person. Um, and the point of that first anecdote is to sort of, in some ways, seduce the reader or at least uh, create a, a kind of a, a problem for the reader uh, that is difficult to resolve within our um, intellectual framework as anthropologists or as uh, or as humanists who are working used to working through um, a, a form of argumentation by context or historical convention or culture or social construction. Um, And the idea simply is that in the forest, um, and it doesn't matter so much that it's a were jaguar, a person that is transformed to a jaguar, a jaguar transformed to a person. It's just the fact that in the forest, um, one has to interact with uh, jaguars in certain ways. And basically because jaguars interpret the world in certain ways. And so it doesn't matter so much how it is that we uh, interpret this. It's getting right how they interpret it. Um, Basically, if you encounter a jaguar in the forest and you look back at the jaguar, it will treat you as a, a being like itself. If you look away, it will treat you as prey and attack you. And so um, the point here is simply that um, we that there are other kinds of points of view out there, other ways of interpreting things, other ways of representing, and those aren't exactly human. And there are times when we have to get those things right. Um, and if that's true, then all of a sudden, um, if it's true, for example, about the Runa, uh, these Kichu-speaking Amazonian people that I was spending time with, um, then we we to be faithful to what they're up to, we can't just uh, use the, the analytical framework of anthropology, which is one that's based on some sort of version of an argument from culture. Um, it doesn't need to be culture in the literal sense of, you know, their belief systems or traditions, but it could be the ways of knowing that are in some ways historically contingent or socially given. Um, 
this example of this inner encounter or the potential of this encounter with this jaguar shows that somehow there's an outside to that. <clears throat> there's a there's a, there's a point of view and a form of representing <clears throat> that is not um, just from within. This is not just how the runa think jaguars think. One has to also tend to how the, how jaguars think. Mm-hmm. And actually, as we move, um, for listeners who might be surprised by even that way of phrasing the problem, right? How jaguars think, and the the book itself, how forests think. As we move further into the book. The, what it means to ask that question and to take it seriously and what it means to think in that context is, is part of what the book is all about. So right. as we sort of move into the book, the introduction, um, among other things, sets up the general problematics that we're going to see throughout the rest of the chapter. So it's devoted at the same time to rethinking, or as you put it, to opening the human and associated concepts, and also to rethinking the kind of anthropology that would be, as you put it, adequate to this task. So Mm -hmm. early on in the book, um, or in this introduction, you lay out some of the conceptual tools and the the kind of touchstones that um, brought you to this way of thinking about these Mm -hmm. problems, including the work of Philippe Desco La, Eduardo Vivero de Castro, and specifically, and well, and um, specifically, and this is something that's going to lead us into the first chapter: the mm. world of Charles, or the world and the semiot- uh, the semiotics of Charles Peirce. Right. Right. So this, um, so the importance of Peirce and, and his notions and sort of opening up his concepts is something that each one of the chapters, in in some way, really explicitly mm. or implicitly engage with, and so. Mm. Let's get right into that because uh, the first chapter really um, lays that out really nicely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So chapter one rethinks the relationship between human language and other forms of representation that humans share with non-human beings. Mm -hmm. Um, It opens with a story about a peccary, a kind of pig, and a sonic image, tsupu. Mm -hmm. At least Mm -hmm. that's how I read it, tsupu. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And understanding um, this peck, what's happening with this peccary and, and why this or how this sonic image means really is going to open up um, a way of thinking about how you want to position a kind of ethnography of signs beyond the human. Mm-hmm. And this gets mm-hmm. us into purse. So can right. you then maybe start us off in our exploration of this chapter by explaining what's happening with Tsupu and yeah. what's important um, to understand about this in order to understand the larger point you're using this to make about signs and semiotics? Right, right. right. So, yes. So it, the, <clears throat> the, the chapter asks you, uh, lays out a little scenario. Of, it's from a story uh, a young guy was was recounting to me and someone else about uh, hunting pigs um, and a wounded pig falls into the water and he describes this as tupu. And so I have the reader uh, guess what this means. And the point is that um, most people, when they try to guess this, uh, the meaning of this, um, obviously if they don't speak Kichwa, they don't, they, they, they don't get it right. But the moment I tell them what it does mean, Tsupu is a special kind of imagistic kind of word-like thing that means um, it, it's used to describe how an object penetrates and uh, makes contact with and then penetrates a body of water. Tsupu. The moment I say that, and this is especially apparent like in a big lecture hall, you, you can hear people go, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm very interested in that question. It's like, what? how did that happen? Why do you say... Yeah, why is that sense? How can you all of a sudden feel 
this sort of recognition for something that um, you know you're not supposed to know. You don't speak the language, right? And so I, I, I take that little sort of tiny example as a little as a sort of wedge into this larger question about of representation, namely that the way that we think of representation comes from the way we're used to thinking of what we usually think of as that paragon of representation, which is the conventional sign or the arbitrary, the arbitrary and conventional sign, or things like the word, uh, the symbol. Um, and my point is that we have a we all virtually all of our thinking about either both representation and what is not representation. And this is not just say anthropology, but also uh, much of say STS. Um, is based on this assumption uh, that somehow there's this completely radical break between a sign and its object, which is actually, in some ways, does act- accurately capture, you know, a purely a pure word as we usually think of it, the word that doesn't really have any connection to the thing it represents, other than its connection to other words uh, in a kind of network of words. So. Just that little example, as again with the pec, uh, the the, um, the jaguar example in the introduction, is an image. It's a thought image that it that, and this is how I. This is the kind of thinking I like to develop. Um, let's think with this problem and try to um, figure out why why it holds, what hold it has, and what it can do. So I've been fascinated by Tsupu even before, well before I knew about the existence of purse. Um, and the way I want to, I try to think about this book, it's not so much, and I've been, you know, it's not so much, oh, Eduardo Cohn, he's doing this thing and he uses a Persian framework. I mean, it so happens to be that I've have stumbled on purse and I find it very productive. But I, I'm hoping that the reader will appreciate that I, I don't think it's that I'm applying purse to the forest, but I'm allowing the forest think itself through me, and I'm also using some of Persia's tools to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really, at least for me, from the perspective of this reader, which is all I can speak from, um, that's really clear. And yeah. what's really important in how we understand, at least, again, from my perspective, with the work that's being done with Tsupu and the larger point that you're making about signs um, comes under the, or is, is really nicely encapsulated in this phrase you introduce in this chapter, provincializing language. Yes, so yes. This is really, right, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because this seems really important. I mean, you're making the claim yes. here, um, that signs are not just, um, this is not just something that operates in the human realm. And so, so yeah, can you that's right. talk about that? <clears throat> My sense is that in some ways, uh, I'm going to use extremely broad strokes here, sure. but um, in some sense, the the birth of the social sciences or the human sciences, and I'm thinking back to someone like Durkheim, um, and uh, is, is based on what you could call a linguistic turn. Um, whether this is with, whether this is laid out in an explicit way or not, I don't think Durkheim was thinking about what he was talking about in terms of language, or whether it's laid out in a more explicit way, say, for example, with someone like Lévi-Strauss or, 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 or earlier uh, Boas. Um, social science, in some ways, and the humanities uh, are based on an insight that much of what human reality is um, is the product of um, 
what you could call very much language-like phenomena. So, for example, um, you could describe informal informal terms. I could say I'm going to say something very jargony, but then I'll unpack it. Um, there are many situations in which analytically we use a, a formula that's something like this: that a kind of what we're studying is the ways in which a relat a, a relatum um, comes into being by virtue of its relationship to other such relata. Now that sounds very abstract, but let me just sort of play that out through a various uh, a ver- series of analytical frameworks. If you think of Durkheim, um, Durkheim's one of Durkheim's main points was to say. Um, you can't understand a social fact or a social institution except by understanding it in terms of other social institutions that sort of sustain it, right? Um, if you think about culture, um, you, 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 the claim is that you can never understand some sort of cultural element in isolation. You have to understand it in terms of the larger meaning system. And you could say the same thing about a kind of Foucauldian genealogical analysis or even the um, the network of an actor network theory. All of these all of these um, approaches, whether or not they are uh, explicit or not about it, are taking a certain property of language, a relational property of language, which is um, which has to do with the ways in which, in a symbolic system, um, a symbol doesn't re- ever relate directly to its object. It relates to a a set of relations among objects by relating to um, a set of relations among signs. That's a little bit awkwardly put, but um, the, the the idea here is that we are often many, much of our analytical frameworks are, are are basically taking some an insight about relationality, which is drawn from the properties of language, and they are they 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 hold true in many parts of 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 our human lives because we are linguistic creatures and we, our minds are in some ways colonized by language. Um, that's makes us who we are. But the point I want to make is that there's also something beyond that. And it, and that beyond is something we have access to. Um, and we need to learn how to, how to think about that without constantly falling into thinking about everything in as if it were language like. So my call to provincialize language is to be much more explicit about what kinds of things have language-like properties and to recognize that and say, well, other things don't have language-like properties. So this word tsupu, when I put words into in scare quotes, um, isn't really a word. It doesn't fully have those language-like properties, even though it's sort of parasitic on language. It's sort of taken along and used in language. And that's sort of, in some ways... Um, that's a a really nice example of one of the ways in which even those things that seem so symbolic and language-like are actually reaching out into or actually open to um, things that, that, that stand beyond it. And that's why that chapter is called the open hole. Somehow language creates a a kind of a hole um, like a complex hole, which was Tyler's famous uh, definition of, of, of culture. But it's also open, and it's that opening that I'm quite in, that, that that has that that that, that I want to study. Uh, that's that's the uh, that's the object and goal of this book. Um, we we know the, how closure works, um, and that of course was an important, uh, hugely important uh, 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 contribution. But uh, it's the opening that we that we need to work on now. Mm-hmm. 
And before um, we move on from tsupu to barking, uh, I'll just highlight for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, and I hope um, listeners go out and do so. Highly, highly recommend. But you mentioned two words that actually um, are are explored in really wonderfully deep and open ways in the chapter, complex and relationality. Mm -hmm. And so the chapter actually pays a lot of attention to the importance of relationality, of habits, of patterns, of the Mm -hmm. reality as such, and of the ways that these create not just holes, but complex holes. Mm-hmm. Look at, you know, you consider at various points of the book um, complexity in terms of dynamic systems, right? And so, mm-hmm. like, this chapter, it's the word complex is not just beside mm-hmm. the point, basically. It's mm-hmm. not just incidental. I mean, what the symbolic representation is emerging out of a self organizing dynamic system here. So right. It's, it's really, right. I think that's really right. interesting. Yeah. Yes. So, from tsupu to barking. So the second chapter, The Living Thought, opens with a moment that involves three barking dogs. And yeah. this moment is going to ask us to, um, or is going to allow us to explore the question, not just how do dogs think, but what does it mean to think? And by extension, what does it mean to be alive? And so yeah. can you talk a little bit about um, these three barking dogs? What's happening with these dogs? And what does this anecdote also open up in terms of the larger um, arguments that you're making here about, um, about thinking and about what it means? Means to think and be alive, and yeah. yeah, can you talk about that? Yeah, so this uh, anecdote um, was um, basically it was an event that became a very important event in the lives of the people I was living with, and also in my fieldwork. And it happened a, probably a couple of years into the into the project. Um, there was uh, there were, the, the there were some people out. Uh, in the household where I was living, uh, some people went out to um, harvest uh, fish poison, and the dogs were trailing along. And um, they were, att- we later learned they were attacked and killed by a jaguar. Um, what this became a very you know, a puzzle. What, what actually happened to these dogs was a huge puzzle, and was was un- was revealed through a, a variety of. Of, of things and it forced them people to think how dogs were thinking um it forced them to pay attention to their own dreams and figure out um what they were dreaming it forced them to think about what their dogs might or might not have dreamt um so it became a very interesting thing but the particular example that i, I start with has to do with a statement or a conversation that the women were having and it had to do it has to do with um imagining what the dog's failed to notice why how could they have gotten to a scenario where they attacked the dogs the way that the the, the dogs attacked the dogs did what they did um and it seems that from the barks that the women heard that they thought that the dogs had tried to attack something that then attacked them um and they said they got together and they're like oh you know there's only one thing that could have happened they must have um confused a mountain lion a mountain lion with a deer. They must have thought that they were attacking a deer, which was actually a mountain lion. Now this seems kind of preposterous and, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter for the point, uh, that I'm trying to make, which is simply that to imagine how, um, a being thinks one has to also imagine the productive, uh, in, in the broadest of terms, the productive ways in which confusion is, um, creates a kind of thought, creates a kind of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And it, it, 
and specifically a kind of stupidity is a form of thinking. Um, I often say that um, I, I, tr I try to provoke my anthropology students in my big introductory lecture classes that what I love about anthropology is that it's a flaky science <laughs> and that I myself am a sort of a flake. And this is um, exactly the sort of thing that, I'm, that intrigues me. Um, how is it that um, at the heart of thinking, there is something that is not thought like at all, um, that it's sort of essential. It, it involves a kind of confusion. And this is an introduction to uh, one sort of theme that is extremely important throughout the book, which is um, the this productive power of not noticing difference and the ways in which, um, although we tend to think of thought as based on difference, um, Saussure will say that at the heart of all of all semiology, its difference is the is the one thing that sort of organizes it all. Um, that I, I think that there's actually something else much more counterintuitive at the heart of stuff, which is absence and confusion. And in some ways, the book, um, the, one of the larger arguments of the book is to sort of get at this weird counterintuitive property that is intrinsic to life. Um, mm -hmm. Now, one of the, thank you for that, by the way, I'm not <laughs> really lost in thought, um, just based on what you just said, but let's come back so that we're not so lost, um, yeah. or at least I'm, I'm not sort of lost in that moment. And I, I'll just mention, the reason why I'm articulating that is that this is an example of many times when reading the book where I stopped and came away from it and really got launched into a completely new way of thinking and seeing. And this has happened, this happens throughout the book for the reader, at least did for me. And it's one of the reasons I really love the book. But okay, back to selfhood. So you're showing in this chapter that selfhood is not just limited to animals with brains, and it's not just limited right. to humans. And this actually brings up a really important critique of contemporary STS. Mm -hmm. So you are critiquing in this chapter in a way that I think is very productive, the way STS tends to treat non-humans generically and really missing the distinction between selves on the one hand and objects or artifacts mm -hmm. on the other. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems to me to be an extraordinarily important and productive critique. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, um, the, there's a certain part of STS, uh, which can be in some ways captured through, um, you can think of a much, uh, a certain part of say Bruno Latour's career. Um, although I think it's quite, um, uh, I, well, I think there, there are many parts of, of what he's up to, especially in the, in his current project, um, of yeah. the in inquiry into modes of existence where lots of different kinds of, um, lots of different kinds of realities uh, he's playing with uh, trying to figure out how to be true to and translate among lots of different kinds of realities but there's a certain moment in sts uh, that has that sort of um that that is responding to the same problem that that i'm i'm working with and others are that somehow this social construction stuff is a real problem. Um, that social construction in some ways creates two kinds of things. The, the, the reality out there that we can either say exists or doesn't, and the thing that we represent and create. And this is obviously a big problem. And so 
uh, ST, this sort of traditional STS, those actor network theory, is is an attempt to um, somehow get 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 beyond uh, that social construction. But the way that it tends to be done is to somehow through a kind of reduction. I mean, it's not called that. Um, in fact, it's sometimes called irreduction. But it's 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 effectively reduction in the sense that. Um, there's a kind of flattening, an ontological flattening. The way in which you create a relationship or you recognize relationships among different kinds of entities is to treat them as if they were the same kinds of entities. Um, and so, yes, things and selves and objects and artifacts uh, all get sort of uh, – are, are, are treated as the same kind of thing. Now, the problem is that that um, that erases certain kinds of very real differences um, – and and it also forces us often to account for certain sorts of relationships by sneaking in very human-like kinds of qualities back into the thing. So you get things that have very much thing-like properties and humans that acquire very much thing-like properties. But then the whole thing gets sort of motivated by certain kinds of intentions that seem extremely human. Um, and that also requires uh, a lot of uh, linguistic dexterity uh, from the point of view of the writer and humor. And I'm not so good at that. <laughs> so, um, um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's the short answer um, to, to what I'm getting at. But, but self, what self is, uh, I sort of try to get at what I think of sort of minimally. Uh, part of what this, one of the strategies of this book is to show that things that we take um we i guess in some ways we we our general way to, of looking at stuff is to say okay there's all this human stuff which we understand really well like symbolic thought and language and culture and those sorts of things and mm. ethics and power or whatever um and then there's this world of stuff out there that we kind of use um some sort of kind of physics sort of understanding to understand how that works. So this is a sort of mind-body dualism. And part of my project is to sort of show that there's actually a whole, bu a whole bunch of these things that, that we kind of know from the sort of full-blown human, from the full-blown full -blown human examples, things like self or representation, actually have much more pervasive, simpler versions. And by simpler, I don't mean, I don't, this is not an ethical or I don't mean, uh, sorry, I don't mean to pass judgment on it, but more pervasive, um, less hierarchical um, versions. So, uh, and and to understand that, one once one appreciates that, then one can see how we humans are actually sort of related to many more kinds of things. So self, I'm very interested in saying, well, there's actually a very, there are some very simple ways to think about what self and thought are, um, which, uh, large well life life wherever it is found will have will exhibit and uh, those things stand in continuity with the kinds of things that we do mm -hmm. and you show actually you go on to show in the next chapter staying with this theme of self and understanding what it is to be this uh, to be a self that to be a self and to be an object are not necessarily um two different kinds of things that don't coexist. And so chapter three considers the challenges and considers the issues involved in living as a self within ecology, within an ecology of other selves. And specifically, um, you look at the relationships here of um, 
different kinds of selves living in this ecology in terms of life and death. So specifically, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be a hunter that's mm-hmm. simultaneously right aware of and respecting the fact that you are living in a web of relationalities with other selves and also mm-hmm. killing some of those selves, right? right? right. Or, you know, and what happens when um, you die yourself. And so right. um, can you talk about that in terms of um, the work that this chapter is doing. This is a chapter called Soul Blindness and it really explores sort of what happens in, the, in terms of the relationship between self and object when we bring death into life. Yeah, so uh, Soul Blindness is a really important chapter in the book in the sense that it's sort of in some ways I mean the whole book is ethnographic but in the chapters 1 and 2 I'm really I'm really laying out. Um, I'm laying out some something about of an of an analytical framework. Um, and in chapter three and four, I really start to get into some sort of practical everyday problems that people face. And one is sort of the, the foremost here is how do you how do you negotiate? Um, how do you deal with the world in which? Um, you're so aware of the selfhood of all of the various beings that you're forced to hunt and what kind of contradictions does that, that, um, that bring up. And in the process, I'm trying to get at, I guess, two things. One is, as you mentioned, and this is all will sort of come to fruition in chapter six in the final chapter is the constitutive role of death in life. So, you know, you can't think of life without death. And the other has to do with sort of, um, and something else, which is sort of, um, central to this book, which is uh, thinking of our own psychic, our, our own psychic lives. Um, and the, the fact that for us humans, um, this contradiction, this, this, the, this close link between life and death um, is so difficult for us to wrap our heads around um, our own mortality, you could say. And in some ways, hunters uh, are dealing with this all the time. They have to. Uh, so it's sort of, this is where a place where sort of the ethnography kind of lays out some of the sort of what I've called, what I called here following Cora Diamonds from the difficulties of reality that we, we face as humans, uh, sort of aware of this contradiction that just doesn't really make sense how life is wrapped up with death, how death is wrapped up with life. Um, mm-hmm. And there's also um, I want well I want to move on to the pigeons, um, but I want to just mention for listeners there's also a really some really wonderful things going on in that chapter that consider um, just the physicality of fatherhood among oh, yeah. in this context. Yeah, the the figure of the predator. Why so much of the of the experiences that you're relating here have something to do with a predator figure and predation. Right, um, and there's just a wonderful discussion of. Uh, of uh, Cavell also, Cavell's work and his concept of little deaths. And so there's a right. lot. Um, this is one of, you know, all of the chapters are like this. There's so much we could talk about in every single one of them. They're extraordinarily rich. So, well, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say just a little add on that. This, one of the things that's so interesting, I, I mean, there's something, this book is thought of as, I mean, I think of it as something general. I want to say something general about how forests think. And part one of my ethnographics, one of my ethnographic objects is generality itself. But there's something specific and very ethnographically particular about 
um, Runa ways and Amazonian ways of thinking about relationality through predation. And that's uh, extremely well developed, is, for example, in the works of Eduardo Vivedo Zacastro. Um, in fact, he's just written a book called Cannibal Metaphysics, hmm. um, which is sort of a, it, 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 an exploration of the, this kind of ontology of Runa, not Runa, sorry, Amazonian, Amerindian ontology uh, of that involves predation. But it's also a, the ways in which that such a way of thinking about things or such an ontology actually has the possibility of eating or cannibalizing um, our very own philosophical frameworks. So predation sort of plays a really nice role in that. Um, but yeah, it's just incredibly important ethnographically. Um, that's, how we, that's sort of the sort of ecological relationship that, that many Amazonians are, are the most interested in. Awesome. I'm going to go look up that book <laughs> after we stop, stop yeah. talking as well. So as we move here, you've mentioned um, several times already the dreaming dogs, right? The dog yes. dreams. And as we move into the next chapter on trans species pigeons, we move into these dreams. Now, it's right. not all, uh, one of the beautiful things throughout the book, but um, certainly in this chapter, is that you're not just showing this kind of co-constitutive nature of life and death, but also right. within the experience of life and the being of life, wakefulness and dreaming are also both really, really important aspects of what it means to live and to be a self. And so dreams recur over and over again throughout the book. And um, at least in my experience, it really uh, made me pay more attention in some ways to my own dreaming as a result of this. So this chapter um, uses this notion of a trans species pigeon to Mm -hmm. think about and the question of um, what does it mean to interpret the dreams of dogs, right? What does it mean right. um, to live with dogs? And how are dogs themselves who uh, or which who I mean, <laughs> pronouns, pronouns. Right. Yes. I mean, dogs are really central to the life yes. of, of um, Daruna in this book. And so you're really looking closely at what does it mean for a dog to, to survive in this context? And um, what is, and what does communication yeah. look like? And so can you talk a little bit about this idea of a trans species pigeon, specifically in the context of um, the dogs and the Runa they're living with? How does this work? And why is this, or in what way is this important to the kind of work that this um, chapter is doing? Well, this chapter, like the previous one, but even more so, is really, um, you know, I've, in some ways, I start the book out sort of moving away from the culture concept. And by culture, I mean things that have to do with historical contingency. Um, But of course, that's this that's not really accurate to what's going on in the world. And and, uh, the Runa, like everyone, but the Runa specifically, uh, are living in a world that is not just the world of a, some sort of pristine non-human forest. They're living in a world um, that has uh, that has echoes of uh, of the colonial history that they've lived um, from the Spanish conquest on up to today. Um, and so, um, when they relate to the beings of the forest, in some ways, the forest houses, holds all sorts of things, including all these layers of history. Uh, And this chapter is an attempt to sort of begin to really bring that stuff back in. I didn't want to bring it in right away. I mean, I allude to it, but um, because I wanted to go against 
the sort of anthropological move of always starting with complexity um, of, of taking something, you know, Oh, look to understand anything, say the Rooney, you have to understand their entire complete complex history. Right. That's for me, like going back and looking at things in terms just of language, um, because when you say complexity in that sense, you're saying one thing related to another thing related to another thing in some sort of system of relations. So I was trying to sort of not do that up until now where I feel like now that I have explained enough of these sorts of other things that are not that don't have those properties, I can go back to bring some of bring some of this in. And the dog human relationship actually brings out many of the relationships that the Runa have with with many other kinds of beings in a colonial history, especially uh, with uh, whites and um, non-indigenous peoples. So that's what I was sort of, I was trying to bring in, uh, I was a part of that, part of that, um, that, that chapter. And especially with this image of trans species pigeons, I'm bringing in some of those elements. That is to say that when people are, are interacting with their dogs, trying to, uh, talk to them they're also they're forced to sort of create a language a shared language that is neither of the one or the other language here in parentheses a shared form of communication um and in some ways that is a pigeon um both and i mean that sort of in in just the sense that it's two species uh, that have to sort of communicate in some ways but i also mean it in the more sort of historical sense that this is a a form of language uh, that's usually coming together in in uh, colonial or colonially inflected contact situations. So I want to bring that sort of awareness in because it's so important to who the, the runa are that um, and to the problems they're facing. That um, that this is not just about um, the runa and animals of the forest, but it's also the runa in, in, a, in a historical context. And it also, the way that this communicative strategy works also brings out the importance of the fact that all of these selves in this context are all in some way transforming, right? I mean, the, the fact of the communication in this example with the dogs being possible depends on altering the dogs in some way, right? Giving the dogs a certain kind of a drug substance. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're showing basically that in order to survive as a dog in Avila, the dog has to become human in literally right. um, in, in an important way. So it's a really important reminder that we're not just talking about these static selves that just exist out there and are relating to each other mm-hmm. as kind of, you know, as uh, stable individuals, but they are transformative individuals that are transformed and transforming based on the relationality that they necessarily exist with. Within. And so I think that's a really important um, thing to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and one thing that's that's so important in Amazonia, and it's such a sort of powerful mode of being, is sort of what you could call a shamanistic mode. The the, the possibility um, uh, that one can learn to actualize certain kinds of realities by um, by seeing by finding ways to recognize the the the, the self in other kinds of beings um and this is um this is extremely important and it's and it's something that sort of it's a way of being it's a form of politics um 
that is in some ways foreign to us. Um, and the funny thing about this chapter is that I'm exploring it by not because not not so much in terms of the way in which the runa are shamans, but the ways in which they force their dogs to become shamans. Right? Mm-hmm. Usually, uh, people become shamans to be able to enter the points of view of spirits. In this case, the chapter is about the ways in which the runa um, help their dogs become shamans so that they can enter the points of view of humans. Um, but it's always about this, this, this possible, what can happen if you can actualize certain kinds of relationships that may not be always visible or apparent to you from your normal point of view. And that's, that's a very sort of important sort of Amazonian way of sort of being. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So continuing along um, our consideration of the importance of dreams, the next chapter also begins with a dream. And it begins with um, recounting a puzzling dream that you um, have or that you had about a peccary that you experienced. And you, you use that dream to open up the larger issues of the chapter. Now, this chapter is all about, um, among other things, the anthropological significance of form. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and this is a, an absolutely fascinating um, concept and kind of work that you're doing here. And I think probably the best way of treating this is just to, to ask you to talk about it. Um, so can you, can you talk about your notion of form? What is it? How is it working here? And what do we need to understand about form as you're um, laying it out in this chapter? in order to understand something important about the larger arguments that you're making in the book. Yeah, so um, in our normal sort of dualistic way of thinking about things, we have there's two kinds of objects or two kinds of entities that we're comfortable talking about. One is mind, human mind, and the other is thing. Um, and throughout um, much of the book, I sort of chipped away at that dualism by expanding what we think of mind to the point, to the point where um, uh, you know, life, life and mind become synonymous, and mind therefore changes. And of course, I've developed a whole bunch of conceptual tools out of that. Um, that things like constitutive absence, or the the sense that somehow um, images are at the heart of thought, and these kinds kinds of things I, I was talking about um, in the earlier chapters. But there's another sort of piece of of there's another piece to this, which is um, that which has to do with form, um, the ways in which uh, it, it, the ways in which um, pattern or things that are sort of redundant um, tend to have their own sorts of properties. And uh, this um, isn't necessarily alive, although life uses it all the time. Um, and it's not thing like either, but it, it, it requires thinking with because it's so central to life and thought. Um, so that's what this chapter is explores. And um, I sort of get at it again with another dream, uh, this one of my own, of trying to, you know, I had a very profound experience with the pig, profound for me and perhaps for the pig, I don't know. But um, I had sort of a, a weird moment of sort of intersubjective encounter where I was, looking, I was looking at a pig in the eyes for a few moments in the forest. Um, and I dreamt about this kind of intensely and this, I dreamt, I won't get into the details of it, but in the dream, um, I had again, a contact with that pig, except the pig now was not in the forest, but was in, was in a, um, 
was in a, a kind of a ranch. It was in a, it was in a, it was in, it was in, it was in on a farm in a, in a, in like a, a, a pen. And the, the, the point that I, um, that I, that I try to lay out there is why is it, I try to answer is why is it that I dreamt that way? And it turns out that that's a, a very common way in which people dream about the spirits of the forest. They see a kind of parallel, uh, between, um, a formal parallel between the, the forest and, um, all sorts of domestic spaces like ranches. And so that sort of forces me to get into why those, why those spaces might be the same and why is it that I might sort of start dreaming like others, um, even when I wasn't necessarily enculturated into their world. And my answer is that the, both the parallel between an er, certain kinds of domestic spaces and certain kinds of forest spaces and the parallel and, and the fact that I can start dreaming uh, like others has to do with understanding how formal resonances work and how forms propagate through different settings. So in fact, I kind of, my dreaming took on the form of Amazonian dreaming um, uh, in the same way that the estates and these other kinds of farm-like situations, uh, extractive economies of colonists in the Amazon take on the form in some ways of hunting of, of the forest ecology itself. Um, And I have a whole bunch of complicated explanations as to why that is. But the point is that somehow those kinds of propagations are what are at the heart of that chapter and the weird sort of effortless way in which these sorts of things happen. And they're not really alive, uh, they're not thing-like, they're not mind-like, but they're they're form-like. Mm-hmm. And they exist, and they have, and they act upon the world. Yeah, they exist, but they exist in a weird way in the sense that it's sort of like the difference between being hit by a wave and riding a wave, right? So you can be hit by a wave and be, be sort of convinced of the existence of the wave. And of course, in some ways, the, your heart, your something that wave is doing something to you but being in the wave nothing is happening although you're sort of you're in it and so there's that that's sort of the difference between being in form and outside of form is sort of i explore in that chapter and the epigraph of it is about um a monastery and a, and a zen monk saying um the people outside the monk uh, the monastery uh, um can can understand what's going on can feel that something is happening but those who are inside it never notice anything um, right. and, uh, that's sort of weird kind of, it, I'll just, it's, uh, it is the people who are outside of the monastery who feel its atmosphere. Those who are practicing actually do not feel anything. That's from Zen mind, beginner's mind, the sort of idea that what is it being inside form is this weird sort of, this weird sort of experience of, of, uh, that is, but it's also has a kind of it comes out in my ethnography. It's, that's what it's like to be in the realm of the spirits, for example. Um, so it's sort of simultaneously effortless, but also um, it shapes life experiences. Like it, it's, it determines modes of living at the same time that the experience of being in form feels effortless. Yeah, and it requires all the skill. Like, say you're a surfer, right? It's like you know, to be riding the wave is in some ways effortless, but you got to be able to do a push up, a big push up to get up on the wave. You've got to have all sorts of skill and knowledge. I mean, it's the same sort of thing uh, with hunters. Like they're constantly using harnessing form. Like, as I mentioned, um, 
they actually don't just go around the forest looking for animals. They know the patterns that attract animals, the patterns of fruiting trees, for example. Um, they go to they, they, they sort of know those shifting geometries because things fruit at different times of the year. Um, uh, it's not like in temperate regions where you just have the spring, right? Um, so they know there's all these weird shifting geometries and people just know where to go. Um, so they're harnessing form, but of course you need to walk great distances. You need to have all sorts of skills. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's not just about being in form in some sort of Zen way. It's doing something with it, right? Right. They don't want to just go into the spirit realm. They want to come back with me. Um, mm-hmm. And this for listeners, um, and I'll, we'll move to the future. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but for listeners also who are interested in particular in the ways that you're engaging ideas of emergence here, there's, there's also a really interesting set of points you're making in this chapter about forms being emergent and you're showing right. kind of self similarity across scale, which I don't, I don't think I read. I don't, know that you're using the term fractal but it sort of brings to mind a kind of fractal way of thinking about that's right that's right so there's a a ton more we could talk about in this chapter but i want to make sure we talk at least a little bit about um chapter six now this chapter opens up by taking us into another dream Um, and here it's a dream of a hunter who dreams of a policeman wearing a shirt that's covered in hair clippings and the significance of this um is is explored in great detail in the chapter now the dream in this part of the book becomes a way of thinking again about the general problem of how to be a self within the ecology of Runa selves and perhaps beyond and related to this way of thinking and and related to this general problem is a larger point you're making here about the temporality of selfhood, sort of what Mm -hmm. it means to exist with time, in time, um, as time, as a self. Mm -hmm. Life here specifically, um, as you're arguing, involves the future bearing upon the present. Um, So this seems to be a good place to get into um, this chapter and open it up a little bit. Can you talk about what's happening here in terms of the the concept of the future? What kind of work is the future doing and um, what do we need to understand about that to understand the kind of work that this chapter is doing? Yes. So basically, again, I start with the riddle of a, of a, of a dream. Um, and the dream is about, uh, it, what looked like a nightmare. Um, a guy dreams that he's getting a haircut and the, in sort of Amazonian sort of thinking about things or so getting a haircut means it, it means killing a pig or that a pig is killed because the bristles, as you mentioned, alluded to bristles sit on the person's shirt. Um, like when you get a haircut and you get hair on your shoulders. Um, so, um, and that's all, you know, that the thing was that the guy who dreamt this didn't know whether this meant that in in the context of the dream, there's a policeman who comes up to him, uh, who has uh, hair on his shoulders. So in the dream, he didn't know whether it was, uh, whether he, the dreamer was the pig um, which would be a terrible dream, right? Because he is now, again, in this predatory way of thinking about things, he has just confronted his predator, which in this case is a white policeman, um, in some ways like a jaguar also, but it actually was a white policeman in the dream. Or, or as it turned out, the, when he recalled this dream to me was later on in the day when he had just killed a pig himself in the forest. And he says, oh, actually, it turns out I thought I'd had a nightmare, but actually it was a good dream because I was the predator, which means that he was the white policeman. So the question here is sort of in what ways um, 
does becoming um, how is it that in some ways becoming this sort of white policeman, how is that central to survival? And uh, there's a lot of sort of ethnography that has to be sort of explained here. I won't get into it, but but very briefly, uh, the spirits of the forest um, are uh, beings that are sort of portrayed like white policemen, uh, often thought of as whites. Um, And the argument that I make through a variety of different sort of other channels in the, in the chapter is that in some ways for, for this man to survive, he had to in some ways, um, see himself through the medium of his dreams and the way in which the dream sort of connected to the to the to the reality of the forest um, from the point of view of his future self in the future as the spirit. So in some ways, he had to see himself sort of in form, in the form of the spirits, not being attacked by a spirit as if that the, the white or the spirit was killing him, but he had to sort of become the spirit who was the attacker um and that required a special relationship to the future and i and one of the things i talk about there is how this sort of links ethnographically to how people think about um time and the spirits um but also how it links to um many things a way of seeing biology as constitutively always based on a kind of futurity um in some ways all life and all signs are dependent on this weird sort of relationship with a, a, a future that's that's represented, right? So when um, when a jaguar uh, tries to pounce on a, on, a, on an agouti, a kind of wild rodent, um, that jaguar is not going to get anywhere by say, by pouncing on where that agouti is. The, the jaguar is going to have to sort of go guess in some ways where the agouti will be. And it's that um, bringing into that future into the present, which you can see in lots of all over where, wherever there's life, you see this kind of a dynamic. It's the future position of the of the of the agouti that becomes important to where the jaguar will be. And this is not it, this is does not necessarily require consciousness, um, but it's something that is is is, is central. The sort of the, the role that future plays in life is, is very important. And so that's what ultimately this, this chapter is about, but it's also not just again about, uh, life in the biological sense, although it is, but it's also about the psychic life and it's about psychic survival, including survival in this dense ecology, which is not only a tropical biological ecology, which it is of course, but it's also a dense histor- densely layered historical ecology where to survive means to find a place within, uh, the detritus of a colonial encounter. Well, Eduardo, I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, there's so much more about the book that we could talk about that we haven't had a chance to. And, and for example, I, I haven't asked you anything about the photographs, right? Which, oh, yes. Um, the book is full of these really wonderful photographs that similarly to the way the, you know, the sound of a peccary you talk about in the context of being a sonic image. I mean, these photographs very much are visual images that are not mm-hmm. just illustrate, illustrations, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're doing a really important kind of, um, I think, narrative work um, yeah, in dialogue yeah. with the, the written prose. Um, right. That's very, very effective. So there's a ton that we could talk about about the book. It's extraordinarily rich. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Well, I just wanted to say maybe just in two seconds, just 
just expand on what you just said about the, the images. Sure. In some ways, uh, the point of the book is that, that um, forests uh, do think, uh, and and that that sort of thinking is available to us. So the question is not just sort of making the claim that forests think. The question, the point is to say, you too can think like forests. You too can think in this sort of imagistic way. And that's this, these photos are, are intended to do this. It's a, it's, it's the sort of thinking that forests do through images. And the point is, and this is something I, I don't necessarily um, underscore. I do say it in the book, but I want to say it sort of more forcefully is that, this is a kind of thinking uh, that um, that we need to learn to do in the Anthropocene. Uh, we live now in a world uh, in which humans um, are forces of nature, um, and we had part of what we're doing is we're we're changing that we're thinking force are under threat, uh, but in part because we are in some ways perhaps. Um, I don't want to be romantic about it. I don't want to say exactly that we've learned, we've forgotten how to think and fo- think with force, but I'm convinced that the solutions to our problems will, will somehow come from our abilities to, that we already have inside us to think with and like forests. Well, thank you. This is, um, it's, it's an extraordinarily moving book. It's been a very, very provocative and moving conversation for me. Um, and congratulations on the book. I think this is, this is a field changer. I mean, this is going to be something that's, um, does now and is going to continue to really make a difference. So now that the book is out, um, what's next for you? Thinking, speaking of futures, is there any uh, project or are there any projects that are currently inspiring you? Yes. Um, in fact, this builds on the same question of, of images in the Anthropocene. Um, the two sort of areas, the, the, there's, I guess, three areas where I'm moving. Um, one is to think, uh, to, to, to actually methodologically think with images. Um, and um, along with my partner and colleague, Lisa Stevenson, we have been making ethnographic films, uh, and we're continuing to do this. Um, and the idea there is... Uh, how can we actually actually put into practice a form of ethnography which is non-discursive? Uh, that is not just write about it, but actually do it. Uh, and image making is 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 the way to do that. So that's one area. The other area that I'm working on is again on taking this sort of thinking force idea and actually moving more concretely to questions of the Anthropocene and thinking about how to. Um, how how to think uh, how to think in with the Anthropocene in in practical political ways because I do think that this is the these are the stakes uh, for our our projects um, and then the final thing that I'm doing which is a bit perhaps more short term is to think in some ways the way I introduced this um the the this interview is I said that the, in some ways this book is a reaction to the linguistic turn. Um, well, one could say that the, 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 that this book is then also part of what might, what, what might be called the ontological turn mm-hmm. um, in scholarship to think um, and to think beyond uh, human realities as we know them. Uh, and so one of my goals right now is to think about that in more sort of explicit ways, comparing other similar sort of ontological projects and sort of being, try to say something more general about what sort of this ontological turn is about. 
That's fabulous. Um, I have I have a feeling we're going to be talking in much more <laughs> and much greater length about some of these projects yes, in the future. Yes, but yes. in the meantime, thank you so much, Eduardo. It's really been a pleasure, and uh, I'm just so thrilled to have had a chance to read the book and talk with you about it. Congratulations. Thanks, thanks so much, Carla, and thanks so much for your wonderful questions and your patience uh, <laughs> to sit with it. You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.